We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Calls are growing louder inside the walls of Congress to send the U.S. military to deal with Mexican drug cartels. We talk about 100,000 American deaths a day. That is a clear and present danger to the United States that we need to take seriously. The Biden administration launches its Plan B to cancel student loan debt. This is really about... Uh, the separation of powers, and about who makes these kinds of choices. A potential strike looming for Big Brown, the shipping giant UPS. The the bigger his credibility is to, to go around to Amazon workers, that's the real threat here. This is the Daybreak Insider Podcast. Your first look at today's top stories for Thursday, July 6th. I'm Mike Scott. With the ongoing fentanyl crisis plaguing many cities across America, calls are growing louder for Congress to designate Mexican drug cartels as terror organizations. Now some Republicans running for president and in Congress are warming up to the idea. Reporter Nancy Liu explains why so many on Capitol Hill are warming to the idea of using the U.S. military to tackle the Mexican drug trade. The proponents include Republican Senators Lindsey Graham, J.D. Vance, and a handful of others, along with the two leading GOP presidential candidates. And the idea seems to be gaining momentum. For decades, the drug war has included covert U.S. operations inside Mexico to monitor cartel activity and multiple instances of military surges along the American border. But U.S. military operations beyond the border on Mexican soil is a proposal more Republicans are on board with. On Capitol Hill, a proposed bill already introduced would formally declare war on the cartels, which would allow the dropping of bombs on targets inside Mexico. Former President Trump proposes a naval blockade as well, an idea highlighted by the recent capture of a submarine by Mexico's naval forces. The narco sub was leaving off the coast of Mexico City, loaded with three and a half tons of what was suspected to be cocaine. According to one cartel expert, U.S. military involvement is warranted and would be effective in curbing the cartel-fueled drug supply that's claimed thousands of American lives. Former president and current GOP 2024 frontrunner Donald Trump has called for a naval blockade along the southern border, while his leading opponent for the GOP nomination, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, promised last week to use deadly force against anyone caught smuggling drugs across the border. Look, we're going to use whatever leverage we have to ensure that this issue is brought to a conclusion. Robert Almonte is a former U.S. Marshal, and he explains how a military operation against the cartels would work. 
the same way that we go after terrorists in Iraq and Afghanistan and other parts of the world, that's the same way we're going to go after the Mexican cartel leaders and the Mexican cartel. So I think that's very important for people to realize that uh, we won't be invading Mexico. That's not going to happen. From our side of the border, we would strategically um, target and attack the Mexican cartel uh in the same manner, similar manner that we go after the terrorists in, uh, around the world, and that by using drones and sending missiles and, and blowing them up and killing them. El Monte feels that it's time to bring down the hammer on the drug trade. This is something that definitely needs to happen. Nothing else has worked. Uh, things are getting worse, so <clears throat> I think it's high time that we do something like this. While at first blush, one might think that there isn't an appetite to send U.S. troops after drug cartels. However, there is a reason why the idea of labeling Mexican drug traffickers as terrorist groups is a popular idea, gaining momentum, and not just among Republicans. In a poll taken in late June, sending troops to the border to stop drugs was the single best liked of the 11 GOP proposals tested with Republican primary voters and it was the only one that gained support from a majority of all registered voters. Chad Wolf is the former acting secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and says that America has to find new ways to put pressure on the Mexican government to assist with stopping the drug trade. I think there's ample reasons to really uh, start looking at them in a different light. As you indicated, the death toll... Uh, the misery that they impose on Americans every single day, I think it deserves some extra attention. And we've admired this problem, frankly, for too long, for decades. We've tried to treat this as a law enforcement uh, issue, and we've approached it that way, and we just haven't had the success that we need to have. So we need to start thinking out of the box, and we need to start looking at other options. As I've indicated, all options should be on the table. We shouldn't uh, take certain uh, options off that table. And if that means using military force, if that means doing a variety of things that maybe some Americans are uncomfortable with, I think it's prudent to actually start exploring those ideas. And everything here, Leland, that we're talking about is designed to put leverage on the Mexican government, to have them do more. They are a yeah. compromised uh, actor here, but they need to be leveraged to a point to where they're uncomfortable and doing things that they otherwise would not do. One of Wolf's concerns is that in many respects, he believes that the cartels have become a government unto themselves. They are certainly control ungoverned spaces right there in northern Mexico, miles away from our border. And we just don't see that normally. It, it usually occurs in Afghanistan uh, and elsewhere. But that's what we have along that border. Uh, they are better equipped, better armed. They have more power and more territory today than they have ever had. And that, that's a concern from Americans. And, and when we talk about the fentanyl crisis and we talk about 100,000 American deaths, they, that is a clear and present danger to the United States that we need to take seriously. And again, continue to admire this problem and just kind of throwing our hands up and saying, well, it's the way it's always been. I don't think that that's what Americans want, their federal government. So we need to have some options. You can look at cyber operations. You can look at cyber warfare. We've really got to get creative here and start disrupting their operations. These are multinational organizations, businesses that run that way. Uh, and we got to get creative about really taking them out. Mexican President Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador has repeatedly said that he is unwilling to host the U.S. military 
on Mexican soil. Ukraine and Russia are accusing each other of planning to attack one of the world's largest nuclear power plants. But neither side is providing evidence to support their claims. Daybreak insider Charles de Ledesma has more on this developing story. The Zaporizhia plant is located in southeastern Ukraine and occupied by Russian troops. Citing intelligence reports, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Moscow's troops had placed objects resembling explosives on the roof of several power units there. He said the objects could be used to simulate a false flag attack. In Russia, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov adds Moscow's making every effort to counter a great threat of sabotage by Ukraine. Russia occupied the plant in the early stages of the war and over the past year both sides have repeatedly accused each other of shelling the facility. I'm Charles Dilatesma. Even with the Supreme Court striking down President Biden's initial plan to forgive student loan debt to the tune of $600 billion, he's apparently undeterred as he quickly announced a so-called Plan B. His new idea is based on the Higher Education Act of 1965, which states that the U.S. Department of Education has the ability to waive or release government-backed student loans and grants. Many have criticized the Biden administration's efforts to forgive student loan debt, seeing it as unfair to many Americans who have already paid off their loans and as a scam to buy votes, while not addressing the underlying cost problems in higher education. Regardless of how much student loan debt Joe Biden intends to cancel under his backup plan and whether there is an income cap for those whose debts get wiped away, his proposal is likely to face legal challenges as well. Caleb Kruckenberg is an attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation, and he joins the Daybreak Insider podcast to discuss the recent Supreme Court ruling on student loan forgiveness and the Biden administration's new scheme to wipe away student debt. Obviously, uh, PLF is, is pleased with the decision. I don't think anyone who was really following the court um, and following the case was that surprised by the outcome. But I think what is really important to take away from the decision is that this is really about uh, the separation of powers and about who makes these kinds of choices. Because I I think if we look at the decision from the court, uh, you know, they said over and over again, we're not deciding whether student loan cancellation is good or bad. We're just saying this is a decision that Congress needs to make. It's not one they did make, and it's not a decision that President Biden uh, gets to make all on his own. Initially, the president tried using the HEROES Act in order to unilaterally cancel student loan debt. In your opinion, why was his legal reasoning flawed to begin with? Well, I think this is a situation that's pretty obvious that Congress didn't give the president what he was hoping for, what he promised voters. And so he tried to use a workaround um, because, and, and this is something that the Supreme Court actually noted, is that Congress considered this exact policy 
uh, when the Democrats had a majority in both the House and the Senate, and it didn't go anywhere um, because presumably, you know, the representatives, they didn't want to go for it because they didn't think people would like it. Um, but instead, then the president said, actually, I have the power all along. It's in this statute that nobody ever thought gave me this kind of power before. And the Supreme Court, I think, uh, made pretty quick work of that argument. Polling has shown that blanket debt cancellation for college students is deeply unpopular among Americans. In your opinion, why would the Biden administration still try to do something so unpopular? Well, I think, you know, there's there's sort of a cynical answer um, that, you know, I mean, look at the timing. This, this proposal came out um, in late September, and this was, we were going into the midterm elections, and President Biden said, you know, basically, I'm going to make good on a campaign promise. I'm going to wipe out debt for college educated people, and I'm going to give you some free money. Um, But you're right. I think a majority of Americans don't think that that was fair. They don't think it was good policy. Uh, And that's why Congress didn't pass it, because they knew that they, you know, representatives, I think, knew that they would have to go back to their districts an answer to the voters. And I think the president just kind of thought he, he could maybe get away with it. And, and this is really a gift to a very narrow part of his base. PLF was one of the first law firms to file a case against the Biden administration's plan to cancel student loan debt. What was it about this case that made the Pacific Legal Foundation want to take it up? Well, one of the ways that I think was really concerning to PLF and and a lot of people is about how the administration put this policy in effect or tried to. Um, They put it, basically they announced it in a press release in September of last year, and they said it was just gonna automatically take effect in the the coming days. I mean, this was something that was very informal. And so uh, right after it was announced, uh, PLF, filed one of the first major lawsuits challenging it because we really felt like it was an emergency. The president has announced another plan to cancel student loan debt. Do you believe that there will be legal challenges to it? Well, unfortunately, uh, the president made it very clear that he is going to do whatever he can to avoid the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, On some things, he's been very vague, um, and it's a little unclear how he thinks he has the power. Uh, But one thing that his Department of Education announced actually the very same day uh, as the decision is a new rule that's going to change certain repayment obligations um, under a different statute called the Higher Education Act. This is something we've been watching. We've kind of been anticipating. And unfortunately, I think this is something that once again is going to be challenged in the courts um, because we don't think the Department of Education has this power. Um, They can keep looking, but I don't think that Congress ever meant for the Department of Education to just be able to rewrite the student loan system. What else is the PLF working on right now? Well, this is all part of a a larger effort by PLF to challenge executive and administrative overreach. I think this is a really good example of an administrative agency um, here at the Department of Education that's doing something they don't have the power to do or trying to do something. 
and it's really important and we're grateful that the courts have stopped it. But this happens all across the government. And this is something that PLF uh, litigates every day. Um, and we have a ton of different cases against the Department of Education, but also, you know, the alphabet soup of federal agencies, um, because this is not an isolated incident. How can Daybreak Insider listeners help the PLF continue their work? Well, absolutely. The, the easiest way is to go to our website, pacificlegal.org. Uh, we are a nonprofit, and we rely on donations from people who believe in the work that we do. Uh, we provide pro bono legal services in all of our cases. And like I said, we challenge a lot of different uh, areas of government overreach, but our philosophy is pretty simple. We believe in the Constitution. We believe in uh, limited powers from the government, and when they exceed their authority, we try our best to stop them. The Daybreak Insider podcast would like to thank Caleb for joining us. If you're interested in supporting what the Pacific Legal Foundation does, please visit their website at pacificlegal.org. A federal judge is limiting the Biden administration's discussions with social media companies. We get more on this from our Daybreak Insider, Ben Thomas. The injunction comes in response to a lawsuit brought by attorneys general in Louisiana and Missouri. It alleges the U.S. overstepped in its efforts to persuade social media companies to address postings on vaccines that could result in vaccine hesitancy during the COVID-19 pandemic or postings that could affect elections. A White House official says the administration's efforts sought to promote responsible actions to protect public health, safety and security. But Senator Eric Schmidt, who was Missouri's attorney general when the lawsuit was filed, calls it a huge win for the First Amendment and a blow to censorship. I'm Ben Thomas. Negotiations between UPS workers and the shipping giant over labor contracts has been in the process for months without much progress, leading some to believe that UPS may see its first strike in more than 25 years. According to union representatives, for UPS workers, they believe they are due higher pay and better working conditions after the surge in shipping before and during the pandemic. Experts warn that if there is a strike, it could really hurt the economy. In 2020, it estimated that the value of goods it handled were worth about 6% of the U.S. economy. Currently, the sticking points are installing air conditioning in trucks, pay raises, and a two-tier system of pay for part-time workers. Wall Street insider Donald Broughton is CEO of Broughton Capital and believes there still is a chance UPS workers will not walk off the job. Every single day that this drags on, FedEx gains market share and UPS loses market share. One. Two. Both the UPS management and the Teamsters know that uh, you probably don't get the best deal until the 11th hour. So every uh, UPS is not going to give their very, very, very best offer until the 11th hour. And the Teamsters know they're not going to get the very, very best deal until July 30th to 31st. However, if there is a strike, even a brief one, 
Broughton explains what the consequences could be. We're already seeing uh, uh, evidence that market share is being seeded uh, in, in conversations with large shipping customers, small shipping customers. They're all cognizant of what's going on and that their perception has changed. Talking to people who, who, who route freight for a living six months ago, they thought, nah, there's not going to be a strike. Then uh, they started to say, well, you know, there might be a strike. And now they're all uh, believe they're, they're, uh, there's a strong possibility that even if it's brief, that there will be a strike. And that change in outlook has uh, really driven a change in behavior because uh, if you're an, e- an e-tailer and you have a distribution manager who hasn't made contingency plans and UPS goes out on strike, even if it's for a week, um, uh, you need to fire your distribution manager. And everybody in that role knows that's the, that's the equation. Looking at the bigger picture of the labor market, Broughton says that labor unions are seeing some big wins. What's really also important to understand is, is two things. One, the reality of what the current labor situation is. If you go back to the United Auto Workers last, uh, went on strike against John Deere, and they got paid an $8,500 signing bonus per person to come back to work. Uh, the locomotive engineers were on the verge of, uh, of holding up the entire labor contract for, uh, contracts for, for the entire railroad industry, and they got paid an $11,000 signing bonus to finally sign on the dotted line to agree. So UPS has looked at those, I'm sure. Look at what's happening right now with the, the Canadian ports. Unions are getting paid to strike. And Broughton believes there's also something else driving the UPS labor talks. The, the current leader, the president of the Teamsters, is a bully. Uh, if you look at what he's done, look at what he said, look at how he behaves, he has a couple of things he's trying to do. One, mm-hmm. he's trying to extract as much as he can from UPS, get them a signing bonuses, big increases in pay. But he has a bigger objective here. And that bigger objective is this. He wants to organize Amazon. And the bigger of a success, the bigger of a win he has against UPS, then the the bigger his credibility is to, to go around to Amazon workers and say, hey, look, I can I can really help you guys out. That's the real threat here. And, and understanding what's happening, it's not just UPS management bargaining with the Teamsters. There's a lot more at play. The last time UPS faced a strike was 1997, when the 15-day stoppage cost UPS hundreds of millions of dollars. The release of the minutes of last month's Federal Reserve meetings shows some Fed members did want to raise interest rates last month. We get more on this developing story from Daybreak Insider Mike Hempen with the latest from the central bank. According to the minutes of the Fed's June meeting, some Fed officials pushed to increase the key interest rate by a quarter of a percentage point to step up the fight against inflation. In the end, the 11 voting members of the Fed's interest rate setting committee voted unanimously to skip a rate hike after 10 straight increases. The fact the minutes say some members supported the increase shows support for another rate hike last month was a minority view. Overall, the minutes echoed previous comments by Chair Jerome. Jerome Powell, that the Fed will likely keep raising interest rates this year. A hike at next month's meeting in three weeks is considered highly likely. Mike Kemp in Washington. And 
Just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water, shark attacks are being reported in the Northeast. And this time, it's no movie. Daybreak Insider's John Scott has more on what you need to know about being careful at the shore. Two swimmers recovering from a scare after they were apparently attacked by sharks in separate encounters off the shores of Long Island in New York. The two teenagers reported being bitten. At least one beach delayed opening to holiday revelers on Tuesday after drones spotted some 50 sand sharks off the coast of a popular beach park. After a spate of attacks last year, state parks officials have increased patrols and deployed more drones to scout the water for possible danger. Despite the attacks, many holiday revelers were undeterred and remained on the beach. John Scott reporting. And finally, if you were feeling the heat this week, you apparently weren't the only one. Some scientists say they have recorded, according to their instruments, the hottest day on Earth ever, July 3rd, 2023. For half of the world, summer just started, and it's already breaking records. Scientists from the U.S. National Centers for Environmental Prediction say July 3rd, 2023 was the hottest day ever, or at least since people started keeping records of such things. The average temperature around the world was 62.62 Fahrenheit or 17.01 Celsius. That beat a record set in August of 2016 at 62.46 Fahrenheit and just under 17 degrees Celsius. Heat waves are being reported all over the world, including in the southwestern United States, North Africa, and China. Even polar places like Antarctica, which just started its winter, are experiencing warmer-than-average temperatures. Now AccuWeather's Jeff Cornish explains what he thinks is behind the heat wave impacting the entire globe. So the ridge of high pressure across the West is a big driver of this. On the other hand, not everybody's been hot. Really, June was cooler than average for the coastal Northeast. There are some who have been looking for some beach weather, and it's finally here in the Northeast. Uh, So by the numbers, this uh, has not been quite as hot as normal to this point in the summer for the Northeastern U.S. It really depends on where you are. Uh, But for now, the heats in the Western U.S. and the Southwest, that's where the big ridge has been. And overall, we're looking at some more record highs for uh, this afternoon, the next few hours, in areas like Oregon and parts of Washington as well. So we're keeping an eye on that. Uh, But overall, again, we've had a lot of heat out there. It's all about the ridge of high pressure. That's going to break down and shift east. So later this week, we will get a bit of relief. It won't be cool, but it will be cooler into parts of the northwest. Scientists at NOAA have been keeping track of global temperatures since 1979, but... Researchers say these temperature readings are comparable with data that goes back much further in time. In fact, some believe that this is the highest global temperature mark since measurements began around the 1850s. Subscribe to the Daybreak Insider Podcast at Apple or Google Podcast, Spotify, or SalemPodcastNetwork.com. Get our companion Daybreak Insider newsletter each morning at DaybreakInsider.com. Ongoing coverage of breaking news and commentary at SRNNews.com and TownHall.com. Thanks for starting your day with us. I'm Mike Scott. Oh.